0: amen So first and second Timothy and Titus are considered pastoral epistles. so uh, they may be the three letters that Paul has written that I'm most familiar with that I read the most often for obvious reasons, but they're not just for pastors, they're for um, all of us obviously and therefore uh, the church. And what Paul's specifically going to deal with here in First Timothy is um, issues with regards to the church. And so you might think to yourself, "Here's a here's a a document that was written 1,900 years ago. How is it um, relevant, necessary, uh, timely, pertinent to the lives that we lead today?" And as you'll see, it is extraordinarily relevant and pertinent to this exact moment, and it won't take you long to figure out when we begin to study it why we're studying it now, because First Timothy, uh, to best understand the, the gravity of this letter, you need to be familiar, not beginning, but already sort of into a study of Ephesians. So, Because Timothy is serving God in Ephesus. And so it will help you get a well-rounded understanding of everything that uh, is swirling around here. So uh, that's sort of the situation going on, at least for us. That's why we're looking at it at this particular time. Also, with regards to the church, you know, in 2021, I believe it was march of 21 that's the first time in history that uh in america the majority of people were not church-going people that's never happened until 2021 uh from the early 30s all the way until about the uh about the mid, I'd say 2005-ish, something like that, that number, the number of people in the United States who uh, were involved in a local church hovered around 70%. That's where it kind of stayed. And uh, then it started taking a drastic turn down. And in 21, it went below 50% to 49%, and it continues to decline. And what's most troublesome about the numbers uh, as far as church involvement and attendance, which you know could be attributed to many factors, but the point is the most troubling part of all the, the information that we have is millennials. Of the millennials, their involvement in church is... About 35%, which is absolutely terrible. So it gives you an indication of what's ahead in the future if something drastic doesn't change. So the church is struggling as a whole. And churches are closing at an incredibly rapid pace. Um, Denominations are shrinking, which in not every situation churches closing is not bad denominations shrinking is not always bad but it it is uh, troublesome and not all the uh, not all of of that information is we we're not planning churches anywhere near the rate of them closing so and just here in our local area I mean it was just a few months ago that we received two properties at the same time. One for Harbor City and the other one for uh, Joseph Home. So, you know, and there's multiple churches right now in our local association that are on the brink of closing. So, churches are struggling as a whole. Praise God, we're not, but I think this will shed some light on some of those reasons why. I think we need to we need to first just set our hearts around the reality that the church is really important to God and therefore it ought to be really important to us. We need to maybe uh, just rethink for just a minute a little bit about the way that we think about the church. For example, in Acts chapter 20, this is an amazing passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus. So this church that we're studying on Sunday mornings and this church that Timothy's serving, he's meeting with the elders for the last time because Paul will never see them again. And he's pretty aware that he's not, he's on his way to Rome and you know, you know the story at the end of Acts. And so he's nearing the end. He, he loves Ephesus. He loves these men. It's the last time he's going to talk to them. And what he says to them is shocking. He says, be, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, you might want to underline obtained with his own blood. Now think about the fact that the Bible says that the church was obtained or purchased with the blood of the Son of God to give you an indication of how God feels about the importance of the church. You could say that that the degree to which something is important to us is, is equivalent to what we would be willing to pay, right? So nobody—listen— I've spent a lot of time in the ICU, not as much as some people in this room, but I've spent a lot of time in the ICU. And I can tell you what I've never heard, and I'm pretty sure none of you have ever. You've never heard anybody in the ICU saying, now, now how much is that going to cost? It doesn't matter when someone you love is hooked up to a bunch of machines and their life is hanging in the balance. Nobody's asking about how much something costs. They're just saying, is it going to work? Well, so what does the church mean to God if he purchased it with his own blood? Now, you think about the way a lot of people think about church today. What is the church supposed to be? A gospel-centered church like this one is an earthly outpost of the heavenly kingdom. That's what we are. We are we exist to be a representation of the, what the kingdom of God looks like. And so what what the kingdom of God is the place and people where God reigns. Now, we're not ultimately yet to the place where God ultimately reigns, but we are a precursor or a forerunner or a picture of what that would look like to a lost and dying world. So until that day comes, we serve as an as a ambassador for the kingdom of God. So a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus but who does not love or attend church has a huge problem. But I can, my mind is filled with people who fit into this category. People who would absolutely tell you that they they are saved. And this is what I think. So you're telling me that the, The same blood that supposedly saved you was shed to purchase the church which you have nothing to do with. See, the problem is not which church you have nothing to do with. The problem is when you have nothing to do with any church. You have a major problem on your hands there. That is a major theological problem. How are you going to reconcile that? Ask yourself this question. If if you loved something enough to give the life of your child for it, how would you feel about someone who said that they loved you and cared about you but didn't care about that thing? There's no scenario where you could possibly make this work out. It just simply will not fly. But it will, in the imagination of the American culture and conscience, I can assure you. There are droves of people who would tell you, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. Well, you clearly don't love the Bible, you clearly don't know anything about Jesus, because that's just simply not possible. Something is drastically, devastationally wrong. Now, all of us can drift into error, as we're going to see in a moment. But what happens when a saved person drifts into error? Are they just left to float out in the the sea of error? I mean, again, just think logically. The God who saved you put his spirit within you to do what does the Bible say? Not what do you think, not what makes sense to you. Don't think about the person. Think about the truth. The Bible says the spirit that's within you is in you to guide you to truth. So that means a saved person who has drifted into error is not just going to be fine out there in error. It's just not going to happen. Either the Spirit of God is not in the situation, or the person is utterly miserable and convicted about the situation. Or the Bible's not true. you got to make up your mind, but you can't just... You can't just pick and choose. So what's Paul's purpose here with regards to 1 Timothy? Well, the purpose statement of his book is summed up perfectly in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, so that, so there's your purpose statement of this entire letter. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. There is your purpose statement for 1 Timothy. Now, I know all of you used the term buttress in a conversation in the last week. Please share that with me because I would love to hear how that went. You went over to your friend's new house, and you were like, oh, this is beautiful. This is amazing. I love how you did all this, and the buttress is really awesome here. It just simply means foundation. It's the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Underline household of God behave in the household of God. You see, the church is a family that upholds the truth and spreads the gospel. The bu- that's why we always and only refer to one another as family, because that's what the Bible refers to the church as, a household. It's a family. And the family exists for the purpose to uphold and to spread the gospel. It wouldn't do us any good if we were spreading the gospel if we weren't upholding the truth because what we'd be spreading would be non-gospel. Because what does the Bible say? Any other gospel is an anathema. It is not the gospel. It is a lie. It is damning to hell. So you have to uphold the truth to spread the gospel and those are the two things that we do, so you think about this issue of the church and the church is on decline well, I mean we can listen there's not just one reason for that you know there's a lot of there's a lot of church problems I mean there's a lot of people leading churches that shouldn't be leading churches that aren't called by God there's so many churches that don't preach the gospel it's unbelievable so I mean there's there's tons of reasons for this. It's not just that people just independently on their own have all decided, you know, well, you know, it's, there's all sorts of rampant problems as the culture continues to deteriorate. But as we think about this church and ourselves and the people that we know and love around us, we have to understand that the way you approach the church is often the way you experience the church. In other words, a lot of people come here and they come here wounded with church hurt. And, and listen, I want you to understand something because a lot of times you are the on the front lines of interacting with people when they come into our family. And when you discover that they have church hurt, then you should at least understand some things about church hurt. First of all, never assume that the church hurt is the church's fault. That's a bad idea because a lot of times, I would say probably half the time, the church, some church hurt somebody. But half the time, Church hurt is actually accountability. Because people leave here all the time. And do you know when they leave here? When we hold them accountable. And guess what they do when they leave here? They go somewhere and say, they hurt me. That's what they do. That's exactly what they do. And when you see them at Walmart and you go, hey, how you been? They go, well, I'm going somewhere else, you know. Uh, I'm wounded. Really. Especially when they say, well, Pastor Tony hurt my feelings. Ding, 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 ding. That's a big neon sign flashing saying, wonder why that was. See, what happened was, hopefully we want to move to a, place of restoration, but people don't like accountability. They don't like it. But that's not really our problem, is it? No, it's not. So we need to remember that. So, the way, so what do I mean by the way you approach the church is how you're going to experience the church. So here's what, here's what most of you in the room already know, but believe me, a lot of people don't know this. If you come into a church and, and you come in With the idea of this is a family, you're probably more than likely going to experience family. That's what's going to happen. But when you come in with the idea that, well, I'm just going to sit back and retreat and just, you know, stay to myself and see what happens, that's what you're going to experience. So it's all in how we approach the church. And sometimes it's our job to, you know, one of the things we want to do, one of the things you're, you're incredibly good at around here is, is showing people, because a lot of people have never experienced church as family before. And so you're showing them this for the very first time, and you're incredibly good at that. How many Zillions of times have we heard in baptism videos people talking about your warmth and your love and your care. When they walked in the door and they didn't know people and they all the time, we hear it all the time. That's because you're very good at that. And we we want to remain good at that. But now we also have to have this emphasis on Truth and Paul is very, you know. Why is he talking about the the pillar and the buttress of truth? Like, think of all the things he could have said. The Church of the Living God is the, you know, he could have said is the house of love. Everybody would have loved that, but he didn't say that. He didn't say we were the central mechanism of prayer. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. He could have said a. thousand different things that would have been true and would have been good, but he didn't say that. What he said was, we're the, the pillar and the foundation of truth. That's what he said. So why this emphasis on truth? Because behavior flows from belief. And so if we, now let's remember what we said. If we are this heavenly outpost, if we are a picture to the world of what the kingdom of God will one day look like, but still the the shadow that we are now ought to be the best thing that you could imagine on this earth in this life. Right? That's what it's designed to be. So, therefore, if that's the case, if we're to be the, the the picture to a lost and dying world, then don't you think God is very concerned about what kind of picture we are? Well, of course He is, because He shed His blood to purchase it. So if that's the case, then what is it that's gonna drive what kind of picture we are? Well, it's gonna be the way we behave. Well, then the question is, it's not like, well, we're the place that behaves a certain way because we all know behavior modification will not work. So what's underneath behaving is believing. So truth is the whole issue. The whole picture that we represent to the world is 100% predicated on the truth. Everything that we do great and everything that God blesses is... 100% a result of the truth. That's the mechanism that drives everything. And so, as we live our lives, listen, as we live our lives, the way that we manage our free time, the way we manage our finances, the way we, we treat our spouses, the way we raise our kids, the way our views on culture and sexuality and gender and everything else, all of those things are all part of the picture that we represent and so whatever you do and wherever you go people are looking at you and understand something if people are looking at you and they're thinking I don't know what kind of church they go to but I don't want to go to the church that they go to you'll give account for that And if it's the case, you don't have a behavior problem. You have a belief problem. But if you're in this church subjected to the amount of truth that you're subjected to, honestly, I'm not sure you have a belief problem. I think you probably have a salvation problem. I'm just being honest. Because somewhere the train's off the tracks. You can't hear what you hear week in, week out. I mean, I just don't, I don't see it happening. Something's wrong. All right. So, our witness is totally dependent on our doctrine. That's what paints the picture. That's that's the whole, the brush, the colors, the whole thing. It's our doctrine. What do we actually believe? And the thing about our doctrine is, understand, now as all of this is true about the church, you got this whole other situation going on where you got the prince of the power of the air that Paul talks about in Ephesians. And you you got the... the, the powers that are at work in the culture and all the things that are going on. And so our doctrine, because of this, is always the enemy's target for destruction. Why is the enemy always trying to attack doctrine? Why isn't the enemy trying to attack behavior? Because it's way more effective to attack doctrine because doctrine Determines behavior. And so what the enemy does is he's trying to attack doctrine. What the enemy wants to do is, uh, well, let me just give you a a two-second personal testimony. Here's what happens. This is the way this works. Any person, whether, whether you are a pastor, whether you lead a community group, whether you lead a D group, You put yourself in a position of leadership where you are upholding the truth and you're putting yourself in the crosshairs of the enemy. He's coming after you. And so there's never a moment of a day that he leaves me alone. Never. It's just normal to me now. It's every single day, all the time, never stops, no break, Ever. Always. Any which way that he can get us to deviate, to try to get me to compromise in some way. And here's the thing in the power of the Spirit, so let me help some of you who are in positions of leadership where you experience this. So, some of you know this. Some of you will be greatly encouraged by this. So you're saying, you know, what? that sounds like a miserable way of life. To the contrary. That is not a miserable way of life. Let me tell you what it is. it is. It is the most encouraging part of my life. Because the more he tries to attack and the more he tries to persuade, the more he tries to discourage, the more he tries to whatever it is, the more the Spirit of God reveals Himself in me and through me and, and reminds me continuously of His victorious power. So all it, all it really does is encourage me. And there are times when it annoys me. There are times when I get a little beat down and get a little weakened. And I know when I'm a a little weakened and a little beat down because if it's getting to me, I know why. And I know what to do. And so should you. So should you. So doctrine's always going to be the target of destruction. So right after, in Acts chapter 20, Paul tells the Ephesian elders that, The church was purchased with the the blood of Jesus. Then here's the very next thing he says in 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So there's an unrelenting, constant need for the flock to be Shepherded, supervised, watched over, protected all the time. All the time. And so we put up as many safeguards as we possibly can around the flock. But still, you know, it's just like those of you that are farmers, you know. You, you, can, you can put your chickens in the best coop you want to. The coyotes are still going to try. Still going to try, right? And so you just have to keep perfecting and watching and checking, and, and that's basically what we do. That's, that's my job, and the other pastors and the elders here. That's what we do. And we're rooting out false teaching and rooting out people that are bringing in divisive doctrines and things of that nature because it's always there. And then when we get to the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul says O Timothy guard the deposit entrusted to you avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge for by professing it some have swerved from the faith It's another thing you know that we're always having a battle is the temptation for people to start babbling about unimportant things and trying to Create knowledge, which we'll get to in a second. So let's get to this first part in the introduction. So here's how it opens. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So the first thing that strikes me in, this, the, in his introduction is that it's not about who Paul is. It's about whose Paul is. Because Paul, in this introduction, if you read it closely, you see Paul's really not commending who he is. He's commending whose he is. That's what he's saying. The reason why the hearers of this letter should pay close attention and give uh, their, their best to hearing what it says is not because of who's writing it, but because of who's the person writing it is. And here's what this introduction tells us. It tells us that this is not just Paul's letter to Timothy. This is God's letter to the church through Timothy. And that's very clear. Because if you know anything about Paul and Timothy, I'm going to tell you a few things in a minute. I don't. I struggled as to how to even impress upon you how close a relationship this is. I mean, you can tell that it's super close because he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. But it's... They're extraordinarily close. And here's the thing. If Paul were simply writing a letter to Timothy and Timothy alone, and the church at large would not read this and retain this, and this wouldn't be part of the canon of Scripture, do you think Paul would have introduced himself that way? Not even close. You wouldn't write a letter to one of your children and say, you know, This is Mr. Carnes, people who know me well, call me Tony, blah, blah. You wouldn't say that. I live at such and such a place. I mean, here's what I do for... It would be weird. So clearly, this is not just... This is sort of all of us getting to listen in and getting to glean from what God intends for all of us to get. This isn't just personal correspondence, right? So to get an idea how close they are, look at what Paul says about Timothy in Philippians 2. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That is an, an amazing statement. And see, here's the thing. There's, a, there's, there, there's so many things about this that, you know, just resonate with me. That, you know, when, when you are a shepherd and there are... A few people in your life that you can just ultimately and completely and totally trust. It is the greatest gift in the world. It is the greatest gift in the world. And it's rare, but it's such a great gift. You know, it's not, it's not a large number of people. It never will be. It, it simply can't be. But those people are such a gift. And Timothy is that gift Paul and Paul dearly loves Ephesus and he has poured his heart and soul into now I want you to think about this Paul loves Ephesus with all of his heart and he loves the people there and he's poured his life into it and he's entrusting them to Timothy every time someone else gets up here and stands behind this pulpit. That's what I am doing. I am trusting my life's work to them. It is my life's work. I have poured everything in me into you. And so I do not take that lightly and there is never, ever, Ever a sermon that is preached from this podium on any occasion that I don't listen to. Even if I'm on sabbatical, out of town, doesn't matter. Every single sermon I listen to. Why? Not because I don't trust who's saying it, but because I love who's receiving it. And I want to know everything that you're receiving. And that's why. And so maybe some of you are used to churches where there's always all these different people preaching. Well, I don't invite a lot. I'm never going to do that. I'm never doing that. If I don't know you, forget it. It's not happening. And even people that I know, I mean, This is being recorded, and this will be on the web, so I'm not calling any names. But you can figure out that even people that I know dearly, but that aren't bald and up here on a regular basis, I'm stressed. Because I'm thinking, man, you know, don't have a bad day today. Like, you better bring a... That's right. I mean, you know, if, if your spouse was about to have quadruple bypass surgery and, you know, you had an opportunity to, to you bumped into the surgeon in the hallway 10 minutes before the procedure, what are you going to, I'm going to say, hey, how you feeling today? What time did you go to bed last night? I mean, I'm asking a couple questions. What would you have for breakfast? I mean, I want to know some things. Well, that's how I feel when somebody's talking to you. That's exactly how I feel. So, This relationship between Paul and Timothy is extraordinary. If you you think about, uh, of Paul's letters, six of his letters were written with Timothy present. Six of them. Six of them, Paul was there with, I mean, Timothy was there with Paul when he was writing them. Two other ones mentioned Timothy. Then you have, these two, Timothy, first and second Timothy, two of them were directly written to him. So when you add all that up together, you've got 10 out of 13 of Paul's letters included Timothy. I think that paints about the best picture I can paint to how close this relationship was. Now look at... The first couple of verses give us some indication as to what's going on. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So clearly, trouble, just as Paul said it would, has come up in Ephesus. Why? Is it because of something's unique about Ephesus? No, because of course it did. First of all, it's a new plant with, with, uh, you know, young, green, new leaders. So that Automatically, you know there's going to be some real challenges here. There's going to be some real struggles. And that, that's, that's not the uh, ultimate way to plan a church. But if you were the Apostle Paul, that's the only way. Because when you go into a city and preach the gospel for the first time, it's not like you got any seasoned veterans going around. Everybody's brand new. And so he's staying there as long as he can, trying to vet out and figure out who's got you know, leadership potential, and then pray that God just completely floods them with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing. So it's not a shocker that this is the, the happening, and he's got the right man for the job, so he's not panicking, but he is dealing with it. He's talking about these myths and endless genealogies. They're, they're hung up, in all the genealogies of the Old Testament, that's what they're talking about. Because in a couple verses, he's going to start talking about the law. And so, you know the drill. You've, you've all experienced this at some point in some time. There's always someone who's wanting to sound smart and, and you know, find some mysterious relevancy in, uh, that doesn't belong somewhere in the Bible in an effort to be impressive to other people. And here's what I have no patience for. When I get an email about some question, about something that is stupid, it's pointless. The Bible doesn't say, and yet you're devoted to figuring this out. Think this through. The God of the universe has already decreed. You don't need to know this. So what are you doing? And why are you annoying me? And everyone around you? I mean, good gracious alive. If you're leading a small group and you got somebody in your small group that wants to carry on about genealogies or some garbage that's not in the Bible tell them to shut up or tell me and I'll tell them to shut up. No one cares. I don't want to have endless conversations about your ideas about the end times. I don't care. The Bible tells you not to care. Long for it, but you're not going to know. Nobody knows. So, Didn't take a lot to figure out. Now, what is the big warning here? Notice what's happening in verse 4. He says, nor to, uh, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than, here's the key stewardship from God that is by faith. See, the, the warning, the problem, is that the work of God was going undone. That's the problem. The problem's not that you're not chasing some rabbit about something biblical. The problem is you're wasting valuable time. You ought to be chasing something that is relevant, that is necessary, that matters. You see? It's, you know, this... Oh, Good gracious. I've had, I've had them all. I've had In 25 years, I've had every conversation about every looney tune thing out there. Every crazy discovery channel special, every lost gospel, blah blah, blah, blah blah. It's a distraction. And I refuse to be distracted by it. You know why? Because there's important work that needs to be done. And the warning here is that it's not getting done because you got these people coming in that want to carry on about all this stuff. Now ask yourself, here's the question you ask yourself. What gets me worked up that's not the gospel? That's a great question for you to answer. That's a great question. What do you get worked up about that's not the gospel? I ask myself that question all the time. Because I got to check and see. Because let me tell you something. There's a lot of things that it's easy to get worked up about. But the work that ought to be getting done is not getting done. Imagine if all the Christian people, in quotations that pour their heart, soul, mind, and strength into politics. Poured all that energy into the Bible and the gospel. What, what does it yield? Am I saying that we ought to not care about it? Well, of course I'm not saying that. But I'm simply saying, if, I, if my emotions are ruled by some fruit loop in Washington, D.C. Something's wrong. My emotions ought to be tied to the gospel and gospel issues. When when I'm down, it ought to be down because, because of a gospel issue. I ought to be brokenhearted about people being, you see, you got people that are so wound up about things going on in politics, yet they don't care a lick about people going to hell all around them all the time. That's a problem. That's a problem. So I want to be informed. I want to care, but I don't want to care too much. I don't want my emotions, my, hey, no politician has access to my emotions. Let me rephrase that. No politician has access to my emotions for more than 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Sometimes it takes me 10 minutes to bring it back down. You got to be careful. Look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So now we see what's, you know, hey, here's the aim of the charge. So you got to watch out because you got people chasing all this endless genealogies and meaningless things. But the aim is love. That's the aim. That's the critical thing. That's the important thing. Now, notice about this. This is what's important. Paul Paul doesn't give us liberty to—I don't have a slide for that. Look at there. Okay, that next blank is— Paul doesn't give us liberty to define love. Define love. That's what's critical about this. He says the aim, our aim in this charge is love, and then he gives this definition. It's not just any love, but it's love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Now, why doesn't Paul just let us define love? Why didn't he say our aim is love? Because because God knows us. I mean, one of the biggest problems we have today is we don't know what love is and we don't know how to love and we're trying to figure that out. See, what if you define love as just being accepting? What's that going to lead to? Just love them. That's horrible advice. If you don't know what the definition of love is, well, then then everything goes, right? See, we think that if, if... if we love them, well, I just love them. And so if, they're, if their life is, is going off the rails, if Satan is leading them astray, that you just let them go because you love them? See, love is not passive. Love is active. Love intervenes. You can't read the Bible without understanding this about love. See, it's the Bible says things like in Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, his father and his mother, not his father and his father and his mother and his mother, and he's going to cleave to who? His wife. And the two of them are going to become one flesh. See, the only way that works out is if it's man and woman. That's the only way. That's the. There's no other way. So, are you unloving? See, because the world says, well, you're unloving. No. I am loving. That's the problem. That's your problem. Your problem is that I'm loving, which is why you now have church hurt. is because I came over to your house and said, that's wrong, and I love you, and that's why I'm here to tell you that. And here's what the Bible says about it. See, True love flows from transformation and is not invisible. It's not invisible. All right, so let's fix the blanks you missed that you're trying to figure out, right? Don't sit there and act like everything's fine. You're so deceitful. So the doctrine of sanctification in a nutshell is love. That is properly motivated. It's not just love, but properly motivated love. It has to be, or else it's not love. So if the gospel is lost, the power is lost. There's no power. So so many times, like so many churches, there's no power in the church. There's no power. God's spirit's not evident. You know why there's no power? Because there's no gospel. Where there's no gospel, there's going to be no spirit. There's going to be no power. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God is the gospel. Truth is the power of God. Truth empowers love. Your love has no power if it's not based on truth. So see, all of this all goes together. So love flows from transformation, and it's not invisible. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but ignore the log in your own eye? You know that? And so people go... Yes, exactly. So what we ought to do is just stop reading right there and go, you know, we see somebody else and just go, well, whatever they do is their business because I know I got planks in my eye. No, read the Bible. What does it say? And then he says, well, well, how can you say let me take the speck out of your eye when you got a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus said, first, Take the log out of your own eye, then intervene in the situation with your brother. Don't let it go. Intervene and take the speck out of your brother's eye. Right? Galatians 6. When a brother or sister is overtaken by sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Intervene with a spirit of gentleness. Don't just stand there and let them go. That's the worst thing you could do. So if we define that if we define love as just being accepting, well then you got the wrong love. That's not love. People, I've heard people say to me, I've heard people say to other people, it doesn't feel like love. Now say that to me. It doesn't feel like love. What? You mean it doesn't feel like what you want it to be? I'm the one with the Bible open explaining exactly why I'm saying what I'm saying. You're the one with no scripture just defending the way you feel. Right? I mean... My goal is not to feel loving. I mean, it's good when that happens. But our goal is to be loving. Genuinely loving. Real. But look, that's a a battle, isn't it? I mean, you you battle with that in your own families. You got extended family members. You don't know what to do with them. You're trying to figure out how how to love them with real love. And it's hard. Well, I can tell you what's not the thing to do is to come, you know, jump in there uh, holier than thou and come rolling in there like you got the solution to everything. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. It's got to be the truth in love and you got to be prayerful and thoughtful and make sure you examine your heart and your motivation and don't go when you have frustration or angst, of, but you go in, in the peace of God and you, you say, listen. I am here only because I love you and I care about you. And here's what the Bible says about this and it's not going to go well. And I don't want that to happen, which is why I'm here. But it's hard. And there's a constant, constant challenge to not drift So true love flows from transformation. It's not invisible. And then there's a constant danger that we all face, which is drifting. Because, see, when you when you feel like I just don't want to get involved, when you feel like I just don't want to, which, you know, you gotta use wisdom. I mean, none of these are blanket statements. It's not, you know, you you gotta navigate. But you also got to be careful that you're not drifting. Certain persons, verse 6, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. What are these that they're swerving from? Remember the definition of love? That's what they're swerving from. Into vain discussion. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which... They make confident assertions. So you can see it's, it's all driven by pride, insecurity. Sometimes you have, you have people, saved people in the church who are broken. They, they grew up in situations. They've been exposed to situations. They have broken, you know, they, they're just broken from their past. And one of the ways that they're broken is they, they just have a lot of insecurity and they so desperately want people to like them. And they so desperately want people to think well of them. And so they can get sucked into this kind of stuff. Trying to make their self feel smart. Trying to make people think good of them. And it never works. It never works. You don't want to be the person who always knows everything. it's not good you want to be slow to speak and you want to be humble and you just want to realize that it's it's all of us are in danger of drifting into vain discussions see the principle that's at play here is that false teaching has real life implications that's why it's That's why it matters when someone gets wrapped up in some junk that's not in the Bible. It matters. It has implications. It's going to reveal itself in your life, and it's also going to impact the lives of the people close to you. It's going to have damaging implications. It's not healthy. It's not good. It's not right. What kind of implications? Well, think about this as we kind of pull this to a close. I want you to think how heavenly realities are subject to earthly verification. Think about the way God communicates truth, the way God chooses to reveal himself to us. See, sometimes we just take for granted you know the way the you know the the way we have the bible and the things that we we know and the things the bible teaches us but have you ever considered that god could have just revealed truth to us about who he is some of you are thinking well isn't that what he did no in other words God could have delivered to us, and it, it, it could have been in, a, in the form of a, a book. It could have been in the form of, of words that way, but it could have been in lots of other different ways that God could have chosen because he had anything at his disposal. He can do anything he wants to do, any way he wants to do it. He could have communicated to us, what if we had in the Bible a book filled with things that are true about God? God says, this is true about me. I'm I'm loving, I'm kind, I'm long-suffering, I'm patient. I'm the God of salvation. I'm the God of just all these things, just blanket statements of information. But God didn't do that. That's not how the Bible communicates truth to us. What does God do when God wants us to know that he's a God of power, he shows us his power. In other words, he doesn't say he doesn't say to the Israelites, "Listen. I'm the great I am. If I wanted to, I could part the ocean and you could walk across on dry ground." He didn't say that. He did it. There's a big difference. He did it. See, what what God does is he does things and people experience those things. And that's how the Bible communicates all the attributes of God. Now, there are other places where God simply says things to reiterate what he's shown us through his experiential reality, right? Right? But he didn't just say, well, you know, I'm a God of great power, and if I wanted to, I could have parted the Red Sea. Imagine if every Easter what we did was we got together and we celebrated the fact that because we have the, you know, like, just imagine, because this could so be the reality. I could, I could stand up every Easter and say, it's right here in the Bible that, that Jesus lived and died and the Bible says he was resurrected and so we know because the Bible says so that something happened something happened at the tomb and now God's alive but that's not what happened God did it God showed us he told us about it. So we're not saying that at the, at the tomb of Jesus, the resurrection is not the story of something happening. It's the story of what happened. Seen by eyewitnesses. Which is not just... Because again, sometimes we think that that's just so that God can validate the authenticity of what he said. Again, does God have to do that? If you're God... Do you need validation? You don't need it. It's just a gift. He didn't have to do any of that. I mean, the whole Bible could literally be just a page, one page that just says, I am the God of the universe, and I made you, and I love you, and I'm patient and long-suffering and just and... Here's the Ten Commandments, and if you do these, this, and if you don't do these, that, the end. He could have done that, but he didn't. He specifically chose to make heavenly realities subject to earthly verification. That's what he does in the Bible, and that's what he does in our lives. See, think about this. The Bible doesn't say Jesus has the power to still the storm. It doesn't say that. It tells us the story of Jesus doing that. See, the reason that we know that Jesus can still the storm in our lives is because Jesus did that in the lives of ordinary people just like me and you. Which doesn't mean that he otherwise couldn't do it. It just means that he's so graceful and kind and loving that he goes the the ultimate extra mile so that we would be able to have confidence in that. Isn't that amazing? And so therefore... If the, if the Bible is designed in that way, in other words, the Bible doesn't just tell us a bunch of things about God. Because remember, in this text, earlier in this text, he said, they're devoting themselves to these endless genealogies. The aim of our charge is that we would It would be love, this specific kind of love of pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Then certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding. There's a difference between knowing something and understanding something, right? So when Jesus, after his baptism, is sent out into the wilderness, see, this is, how, this is what I want you to be able to do. I want you to be able to use what you know about the Bible and piece things together and come to the point of understanding. Jesus goes out into the wilderness Satan comes and tempts him, quotes verbatim multiple times from the book of Deuteronomy. Did he, did he misquote the Bible? No. He quoted it exactly. So that we would know that Satan knows the Word of God, but he doesn't understand it. But he knows it. So you see, there's a difference between knowing something... And understanding something, knowing that the Bible says something, and then understanding, well, what does that mean? What good is knowing it if you don't understand it? No good, because you can't apply it if you don't understand it. You see, you can't, wisdom is not the ability to repeat things that are true. That is not wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply things that are true. It's to understand things that are true. So this earthly verification, that's how God reveals himself to us through Scripture. That's the way God operates. And then you think to yourself, well, just as the character and nature of God is known by the observable events recorded in Scripture, that's how we know who God is is because we know what the Bible says, but we also know what Jesus did. And so when, when you're trying to figure out, what do I do here? What you don't want to do, when you're trying to figure out how to love somebody in a real, genuine, tangible way, especially when you do love them, but they're in error and you want to love them, then here's what you got to do. you got to guard yourself into doing what you want to do. You've got to have more than just an understanding of what the Bible says. you got to have an understanding of what does it say and what did Jesus do so that you can then ask yourself a question. Now, if, if Jesus was in this situation, sticky as it is, he was in a lot of sticky situations, Well, what did he do in sticky situations? What did he do? When was Jesus passive? When was Jesus confrontational? Jesus wasn't always confrontational. There were certain times that he was passive for a very clear reason. But that's how you figure that out is that you you know these observable events that are recorded in Scripture because that's earthly verification. And so our relationship with God is verified by the observable testimony of our lives. Isn't that right? See, you can say to yourself, "Well, well, what good is it that the Israelites experienced the power of God to part the Red Sea and walk across on dry land because I didn't experience that. So what good is it that they did? Well, it's a lot of good. First of all, because people did experience that, which then bore witness to that. But the question then that needs to be answered is, well, then what have you experienced? What have you experienced? In other words, what observable evidence is there in your life of the reality of God? Right? Which is why Satan is overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Because it's what God did in our lives. And here's the beautiful thing about it. Is that look at how God designed it. He designed it not only to where there would be observable evidence in your life for your personal testimony, but then he put us in a church that he purchased with his own blood that's really important to him, right? The family of God, so that we would all experience together the observable, tangible reality of the operation of God in one another's lives. You see? And so even when you find yourself maybe in a dry spell or in, a, in a, a spiritually dormant season, maybe where God's doing some very deep and good work in you, but where you feel like he hasn't done anything big in your life recently, what is he doing around you? And be encouraged by that. That's what that's there for. That's one of the Primary and predominant reasons why God puts us in fellowship with one another. That's why we together celebrate the good and walk through the bad, is because that's where we see the power of God at work in us. In us. So when God's working in your life, awesome. It's awesome for me when I know about that. And it's awesome for the people around you. And that's for all of us to share together, to be encouraged by. So that's why the church matters. That's why the truth matters. That's why it's it's of no benefit. See? It's of no benefit when You've all experienced this somebody somebody's come up and they say, "Oh, guess what? Let me tell you what God did." and then they tell you this thing, and you go, mm, I don't think God did that because it's dumb. they're just trying to you see what I mean it's just it's babbling, it's just endless genealogies it's just I mean, that includes giving God credit for things that he didn't do. But So how do I know what God did and didn't do? Because whatever God does is validated by the truth. He doesn't deviate from the truth. So do you know how I know what God does in my life? And when I know God's doing something in your life? Because I know what he did in here. See? Because the God of the Bible never changes. He's the same today, yesterday, forever, right? Yes. Don't you see how he's, he's rigged this thing for us to win and prosper? It's rigged for us. And so when we're not winning, it's because we're doing really dumb things. Because he's done everything. Everything. He's given us everything in here that pertains to life and godliness, everything. So in every situation, we we may not find happiness, we may not find comfort, but we can find him and we can find peace. Yes. So praise God for you and for your testimony and for us as a church and for our witness and our testimony. Because God gave his son's blood to purchase us. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's just a little taste of what's to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thanks for letting us love each other and walk together. Thank you for all the the amazing ways.